Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 11, 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you and your trespasses. This is the word of God to us be to God. Amen. You guys grab a seat. Guys, good morning. How are we? Good, man. It makes me so happy to be with you. I've missed you guys like crazy, and uh, I've wanted to be here so many times over the course of the last year, and it's just been a bonkers year at Frontline Downtown, so this makes me really happy. It's like a homecoming to see your faces and see old friends, meet new friends. Thank you for letting me be here. Uh, Andrew and the elders, thanks for letting me teach today. I'm really grateful and humbled that you let me do so, even if you did bring me in on the week where Jesus murders a tree. Um, I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors at Frontline Church. My wife and I planted Frontline Church in downtown OKC in 2005, and I currently serve as the lead pastor there and try to encourage our other congregations and lead pastors. Um, I want to pray for you, and I want to pray that God would do something really deep in our hearts today. This is a really controversial text. It's a text that's been taken out of context. It's a text that's been used as fuel to be offended with Jesus by many people. And yet this text is really powerful. This text has something for followers of Jesus that you desperately need today. And for those of us in the room that don't know what we believe about Jesus or you have questions about Jesus, this text has really profound gifts for you as well. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church I thank you for your kindness. I thank you that we're surrounded by your mercies. 
We thank you that your mercies are new each day. We thank you that the objective reality is that your word is powerful. That it accomplishes what you want it to accomplish. So Spirit of God, would you take the word that you inspired and would you use it with your skill and with your goodness and with your grace to shape us today? Would you please grant us repentance where we need it and hope where we need it and faith where we need it and life and joy and peace and patience? Would you please come and prune us today? Um, Lord Jesus, you are the vine and we are the branches and we can do nothing apart from you. So will you deeply graft us into you and will you nourish us on your very spirit? Pray all this in the name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. Hey, so let me remind you where we've been in the gospel of Mark. And I, I think that's really important as we get to today's text because today's text in chapter 11 doesn't make a lot of sense unless you remember what's happened in the previous 10 chapters. At the beginning of the gospel of Mark, we hear the voice of John the Baptist. John is this prophet and he has a very clear message. It's simple but profound. John's message is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he points to his cousin Jesus and he says, that's the one that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's the anointed one or the Messiah. He's the one that the Old Testament promised would come, who would bring the very presence and peace of God. Then Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John. He comes out of the water and God the Father speaks, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He comes back from the wilderness, and John tells us that Jesus' preaching ministry can be summed up by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. So what we see in the first few verses, in the first bit of the gospel of Mark, is that Jesus is God's king and God's son who came to bring the very presence and rule of God to this planet. And then crazy things start to happen. The kind of things that we would hope would happen if the living God was around start to take place. People that are broken in their bodies are healed. People that are tormented by evil spirits are set free and clothed and in their right minds. Places in which creation is hostile to humanity as a result of the fall are confronted by Jesus as he calms storms and makes waves cease. People that are hungry are fed. It's amazing what Jesus does. And in the midst of all of this kingdom inbreaking, the rule of God and the presence of God and the peace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God and the heart of God to bring restoration, we're introduced early on in this gospel to the tension. And the tension, the resistance to God's king and God's kingdom doesn't come from the people that you might think it would come from if you were raised in religious circles. It's not the alcoholics that are resisting Jesus. It's not the atheists or the agnostics. It's not the prostitutes or the tax collectors. In fact, the people that resist Jesus are the very people that were supposed to help prepare the way for Jesus. It's the chief priests. It's the scribes. It's the Pharisees. It's the teachers of Israel. Their responsibility was to speak God's word and to point people to God's promises, which all find their summation in God's king who had come. But what we see is that they don't want him. They resist him, and they resist God's kingdom. First of all, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy for forgiving sins. Then we see 
that they're deeply offended that he eats with tax collectors and sinners. The people we would think would maybe resist Jesus, that would not want God's rule and God's reign, are the very people that are excited when Jesus shows up. It's the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the alcoholics and those that are outside of the religious life of Israel and the Pharisees, they see that and they're indignant that Jesus would eat with sinners. Then things get even worse. They start to be offended with Jesus because he refuses to play their religious games. They had added all kinds of rules to God's law that aren't in the Bible. They had rules for washing and rules for the Sabbath. And by the time Jesus shows up, the oral tradition of the scribes and Pharisees were so oppressive that people were terrified of even trying to obey God because they had made it so burdensome. And Jesus won't play their games. He refuses to keep their extra rules. He refuses to let their traditions be authoritative. And then, then this is crazy, in chapter 3, they literally accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. They have completely missed God's arrival in his son. And by the time we get to chapter eight, Jesus does this amazing miracle. He takes a little bread and a little bit of fish and he feeds the multitudes. And instead of being amazed by that, or at the very least, instead of being curious about that, Like, Jesus, how did you do that? And why did you do that? And what does that mean about who you are and why you showed up? The scripture tells us that they're actually offended with Jesus and they come to accuse him. And by the time we get to chapter 11, this book is now in transition. We've moved in chapter 11 from Jesus's preaching and teaching ministry and his healing ministry in the region to Jesus going to the very center of the religious life of Israel. And he tells his disciples no less than three times that the very leaders of Israel, the ones that were responsible to help cultivate spiritual vitality and love for God and love for neighbor, those guys are going to be the ones that will arrest him and hand him over to be murdered. And Jesus prophesies that three days later, he will rise from the dead. And now, We get to this weird moment where Jesus does something that seems really out of character for him. Up to now, all of Jesus' miracles are profoundly beautiful. Jesus takes things that are bent and he makes them straight. And he takes things that are sick and he makes them well. And he takes people that are hungry and he gives them food. He takes things that are hostile and that are destructive and he makes them constructive and beautiful and flourishing. But now Jesus does a different kind of miracle. He does, a, he does a destructive miracle. He goes to a fig tree that's covered in beautiful leaves because he's hungry. There's no fruit on the fig tree and he curses it. And this particular miracle has been received by some as evidence that Jesus is unhinged, that he's entitled, that he's maybe insecure, that maybe he just uses power in ways that are unworthy. But what I want you to see today is that Mark is telling us about this event to point out that Jesus is both Savior and Judge. And as both Savior and Judge, what happens in the temple, the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, the return to the fig tree, these are not three separate vignettes that we just heard. These are all connected. They're all about one big message, and that one big message is something we need to hear. So take your Bible, Mark chapter 11, and I want to show you four or five things from this text. Number one, I want you to see that the cursing of the fig tree is a prophetic parable. 
Jesus going to the fig tree into the temple and back to the fig tree would have done something in the collective scriptural imagination of his early disciples. These were Jewish people that were raised on the Old Testament books, the Bible. They had the books of prophecy, the minor and the major prophets. And Jesus going to the fig tree temple, back to the fig tree, would have caused a light bulb to go off over their head. It would have reminded them of a metaphor that pops up all over the Old Testament. Let me give you a few examples. I know some of you guys have a fever that can only be cured by minor prophets. I'm here to help you today. All right. Listen to the words of Hosea, chapter 9, verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor, and they consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. And they became detestable like the thing that they loved. Okay, here's what we see again and again. There's imagery all over the Old Testament of the nation of Israel being like a vineyard that God planted or a fig tree that he cared for. A vineyard that was supposed to, in response to his grace, the fact that he chose them, the fact that he pursued them and delivered them from Egypt, he expects that vineyard to be full of beautiful grapes that will produce the wine of righteousness. Or like a fig tree that he's watered, that he's cared for, that he's cut a trench around, that he's meticulously pruned, he expects to find on that fig tree the fruit of righteousness, love for God and love for neighbor. But what Hosea is telling us is that when God came to expect to inspect his fig tree in his vineyard, instead of finding fruit, what he found was idolatry, that they had turned from God and they were worshiping fake gods. This theme continues. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 8. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. And then Micah chapter 7 is a prophetic lament. The prophet says, woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, and there's no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. It's the tragic state of the religious life of Israel instead of the fig tree producing fruit and the vineyard producing grapes, it's fruitless. And then Jesus, right after cursing the fig tree, he goes into the temple, and here's what happens. It's deeply connected. Look at these verses with me, starting in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he brought the temple, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Okay, Jesus goes to the very heartbeat of Israel. 
the center of the religious life, the place where God's presence was to dwell, the place that was to be a place of reconciliation and sacrifice and worship and honoring of God and reconciliation between people, Jesus goes to inspect it. And what he finds is that like the fig tree, there's all kinds of religious leaves on the temple. There's green religious leaves of prayers and sacrifices and liturgies and priests and people coming and going, but there's no fruit in the temple. Love for God has been replaced by love for money. And what we see is that God's heart for the Gentiles is not a fruit that's there when Jesus shows up. Why does Jesus say my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? What's that about? Well, here's what's happening. We know historically that there was part of the temple called the Gentile court. And the Gentile court was to be this sacred, holy, and reverent place that would be a place where all of these people from other nations outside of Israel who had heard about God's kindness to Israel, his faithfulness, the beauty of his word, his holiness, his splendor, They would be drawn from the surrounding nations from all over the world and they would have this place in the temple even though they weren't Jewish where they could experience the presence and power of God. They could fear God. They could hear God's law. They could worship God. They could be added to those that hope in the promises of God. Far from God excluding the nations and choosing Israel, the heart of God for the nations was a part of why he put his covenant mercy on Israel. Even when the temple was dedicated, Solomon prayed that people would be drawn from all over the world, that pagans would hear about God's mercy and they would show up and worship in the temple. That was supposed to happen in the court of the Gentiles. And under the leadership of the religious leaders of Israel, here's what had happened. The court of the Gentiles, instead of being a place that showed God's heart for those that weren't Jewish, it blocked them from being able to encounter and worship God. It had become a mall. It had become a place of commerce. It had become a place where the leaders of Israel were patting their pockets by having exorbitant prices on the animals that needed to be sacrificed for the travelers coming into Jerusalem. In essence, here's what they were saying to those that weren't Jewish. They were saying, you're not wanted here. So Jesus comes to the temple and what he finds is that there's leaves, but there's no fruit. The very life of Israel's religious rhythms had been turned into barrenness before God. And listen, can can we just stop here for a second and acknowledge with a bit of appropriate fear that this is the perennial danger for the people of God. We see throughout history that there's times where the church has the leaves of religion. We have the services and the liturgies and the priests and and the deacons and the pastors and the elders and all the ministries that we do for this city, but there's times in which those religious leaves lack the true fruit of devotion to God, fear and reverence and love and adoration. And there's times in which the fruit of loving one another is not present in the church. When love and reconciliation are replaced by division and dishonor and devouring each other, What happens next is really telling. I want you to see, number two, that the cleansing of the temple is an act of both judgment and mercy. And we have a hard time holding those two words together. We think they're completely diametrically opposed. But there's a paradox here where mercy and judgment are always together when God breaks in on this side of eternity. When he shows up to bring his kingdom, There's both good news and there's bad news. Let let me tell you a prophecy about Jesus from Malachi. Listen to this. 
Malachi chapter three, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Track with me, that is good news. The thing that made Israel special was the presence of God. And this prophecy is that there's a day coming where the Lord himself is gonna come to the temple and that's the thing that everybody needed. The greatest tragedy in the life of Israel was the moment where they created the golden calf and God says to them, I'm gonna bring you into the land that I promised, but I'm not gonna be with you. My presence won't be there because if I'm with you because of your sin, I'm gonna have to kill you. And now the prophet says there's a day coming where the Lord's gonna come to the temple. The thing that human beings need more than anything else is not just food and drink and comfort and a decent wage. The thing we need more than anything else is the presence of the living God. But there's bad news as well. Look what happens in verse two. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. The good news is that he's gonna come to his temple, but the bad news is he's gonna come to his temple in his holiness and splendor that's like a refiner's fire that separates the precious from the vile, that moves towards the precious gold and silver with the kind of heat that makes the dross and the gold move apart. In essence, it's gonna be really good news and really painful news. And the same thing is true of the gospel today. The good news of Jesus and the inbreaking of God's kingdom through the gospel is amazingly good news to those that know that they need to be rescued, to those that know that they don't stack up to the perfect standard of a holy God, to those that know that they can't be good enough. They've tried the religious treadmill and they realize that it's futile. They know that they can't stand in the presence of God and hold their head high based on their track record or resume. The gospel's is good news that God came to us because we couldn't get to him. The gospel's profoundly good news to the desperate, to the hurting, to the broken, to the empty, to those that are thirsting for righteousness, knowing that it's not found inside of them. The gospel's the best news in the world. It's that God's here through his son Jesus to make us a part of his family. But the gospel's also really bad news if we demand to be the king of our own kingdom. The gospel is really bad news if we refuse to lay down our life at the feet of Jesus. The gospel is really bad news if we think that our righteousness or comparing ourselves to others is how we stand before God. We see this even in our text today that like for the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus coming to the temple to purify it is the moment where they harden their hearts even further to destroy him. And yet the crowds were astonished. Many of the people that see Jesus teaching in the temple will receive Jesus as Lord and become the foundation of the early church in Jerusalem. The gospel brings mercy and judgment. That's what's happening in the cleansing of the temple. So this leads to the third thing. What does this mean for us? Many of the things we're reading about today seem so abstract and weird to a culture like ours that doesn't have temples and doesn't have sacrifices, that's not agrarian. I don't even know if anybody in Oklahoma is able to grow figs. I don't know. What's what's the application for you and me? And I think the application that's really important is that fruit matters. Fruit matters. Let me give you just a few things to think about from the Gospel of Matthew. 
Matthew chapter three, the Pharisees are showing up because John the Baptist is preaching and he sees them show up and he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Here's what he's saying. Hey man, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're showing up, but there's gotta be fruit that follows repentance or the repentance really wasn't repentance. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Okay, if we continued, we could go to the rest of the gospels. We could go to the epistles. And here's what we're gonna see at every turn. The grace of God when received is guaranteed to produce fruit. The grace of God produces fruit. Now, that doesn't mean that the fruit that's produced is always instantly mature or ever perfect on this side of glory. Like, you don't have 30 years of being really good at worshiping God's stuff and hating God and then have an encounter with God's grace and all of that be instantly gone from your life. Or am I the only one? (laughs) Like, It's not instantaneous, and it's not perfect. We're still sinners by nature and choice. We still struggle. We still fail. We blow it all the time. But here's what we see. The grace of God is so guaranteed to produce fruit that on the great day, the day of judgment, God is able to evaluate who has received his grace based on looking at the fruit of their lives. Is that works-based? Does that mean that we have to bear fruit for God to receive us? No, it's the opposite of that. It's that when the grace of God captures our hearts, the guaranteed outcome is that there will be fruit. What is that fruit? Well, it's things like love for God. It's things like love for neighbor. It's hatred of sin and a desire to fight it, even though we fail at times. It's faith and it's hope and it's love. It's what the Holy Spirit produces, love and peace, and joy, and patience, and goodness, and kindness, and self-control. It's not instant, and it's not perfect, but fruit matters to God. And if there is no fruit, then we have to come to the sober realization that maybe, just maybe, we haven't received his grace. Now, this is sobering, and it's a little scary, and I could see how in this moment, like, we could spend, especially those of us that are already kind of shame-driven and broken or prone to like dark introspection on Mondays. That's what I do on Mondays. Uh, I could see how we could kind of like go to some really bad places with this. But I want you to see that where Mark ends this story is such good news. It's so amazing. It's such a kindness of God that he takes us from the fig tree to the temple back to the fig tree. Look what happens. Let me read these verses to you and show you number four, that bearing fruit is impossible without help. Look at verse 20. And they passed by in the morning and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, look, rabbi, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. 
And whatever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, let's be honest. I know that some of you are really familiar with this text and you've never questioned just how weird this text actually is. But I want to point out that this is really weird. This seems like a strange non sequitur. Like Peter points out the fig tree and he's amazed. He's like, Jesus, you cursed the fig tree and it's dead today. And then Jesus is like, yeah, let's talk about prayer. He doesn't explain the fig tree. He doesn't process with them what happened. He doesn't even say why he did it in this moment. He just starts teaching on prayer. It's like, Jesus, I just pointed out that you murdered a fig tree and you're going to talk to me about prayer? It's the best news ever. Here's what's happening. Even though we've done weird stuff with these verses, we've pulled Jesus' teaching here on prayer away from the context, which is the cursing of the fig tree for not having fruit, the cleansing of the temple for not having fruit. We've taken these verses out of their context and we've done really weird things. Whatever you ask for in my name, believe you've received it and it will be yours. Like that's created all kinds of weird stuff in our prayer life. We got fools out there claiming private jets and dope cars and attractive spouses. They're just claiming stuff left and right. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching on prayer and trusting the Father and forgiving people that hurt us. He's teaching on prayer, asking and believing that we receive in the context of showing us how desperately we need fruit that follows his grace. Here's what he's saying. You can't produce fruit by yourself. Like, let's just do an experiment. Um, do we have any husbands in the room? Don't raise your hand. Do we have any husbands in the room that struggle with entitlement and sometimes you find it difficult to lay down your life and just serve your wife? Okay, me too. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna count to three and you produce good fruit. Ready? One, two, three, go. It doesn't work like that. Is anybody in the room struggling with anxiety about your teenage kids? Okay, quick. Produce peace. Anybody struggling with patience or kindness? Is anybody swept into the bizarre cultural moment that we're in where everything online is just like assuming the worst about everybody? Quick, produce charity towards others in your life. Go. It doesn't work like that. Fruit is something that is the outflow of communion with the living God. And what Jesus is saying in his teaching on prayer is really great news. What he's saying is, you can't produce fruit on your own, but the Father knows what you need. And when you ask him for what you need in faith, he's going to give you what you need in the context of fruit. This is about him producing in our lives the kind of fruit that was lacking in the fig tree that it's through communion, it's through prayer, it's through forgiving as we've been forgiven because we know we are gonna need to be forgiven again, <laughs> that our lives start to change and we start to grow. Here's what he's saying in essence. He's reminding us of what John records in John chapter 15. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, abide in him because apart from him we can do what? Nothing. This is great news. What do you need today? What do you need today? Jesus gives us permission here to ask in faith for what we need today. And he shows us in these verses that though he cares about our physical needs, he cares about our bodies, he cares about our jobs, he cares about 
our bank accounts. He cares about having enough food. He cares about all that stuff. All that stuff matters to God. We can pray for all those things. But here's what he's showing us in today's verses. He's showing us that we badly need fruit. And we can ask God in communion with him through the work of Jesus to help us to be the kind of fruitful people that reflect God in our lives. That love God and love people and don't buy into the anxiety of our world, but live lives that are increasingly formed to reflect the peace of God. So I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I need to pray. <laughs> I need to ask for help. I need more fruit in my life. And, and you do too. And we need more fruit in our church. So can we just bow our heads and close our eyes and just obey Jesus? What do you need to ask for? More love for God? More love for neighbor? More patience with your kids? Do you need renewed kindness in your life? Do you need God to help you hate sin? Man, you can ask. You can ask. And Jesus is saying, whatever you ask in his name, believe you've received it and it will be yours. So God, would you help us? Would you make us a fruitful people and a fruitful church? Would you deliver us from having the leaves of religion and not having the fruit of righteousness? Help us today, we pray. Amen.